Welcome to the Onassisere Conversations. My name is Mirto Katsimicha. I'm a curator and cultural worker based in Athens and your host in this series of recorded encounters with the participants of Onassisere. Founded on the principles of learning and doing with others, Onassisere is an international research residency program in Athens initiated by the Onassis Foundation in 2019. They say that what happens in one place stays in that place. I cannot find a better way to describe all the things that have been happening inside the Onassis Air House since I first entered as a participant of the Critical Practices Program in fall 2019. The truth is, it is not easy to transmit an open-ended process of relationing which is very personal and relevant to a specific place and moment in time. How can I then give you a glimpse into that process? Everything starts with a conversation. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking with the Onassis Air participants to shed light on their artistic practices and needs, as well as to reflect on ways of being and working together. In this conversation, I'm very happy to welcome Felipe Steinberg, Felipe is a visual artist whose work focuses on systems of representation through various media that explore the constructed meanings of the local and the global. Felipe is a participant of the School of Infinite Rehearsals Movement 7 with a collective research focus on economies through the lens of community economies. Today, we will discuss about invisible forms of labor and its redistribution towards an economy of care. Felipe, welcome to Palermo. Thank you so much, Mirto. I'm very happy to be here. It's very nice to have you here with me today. I would like to start with uh, your artistic practice. I've observed through the conversations that we had so far that labor time and leisure time have been an ongoing thread throughout your practice, as well as your insistence to look for all the negative spaces the absences, or the in-between spaces that often remain invisible. And if I want to locate your connection with the notion of economies, I would say it is through your interest into the circulation and distribution of this invisible matter of affective labor. I'm curious to know how you started engaging with these notions, but also what artistic strategies you employed to make the visible visible again. Right. I think this notion of, um, I would call it mediation issues that would be related to experience that I have in 2001, which was that the day of September 11 happened in New York. In the same morning, the mayor of my city was uh, murdered for unclear reasons. And although these two events are not connected, I think from that moment, it created this third space between two worlds, the US, New York, and my city, Campinas, because that day we didn't know why we were not going to school. It's because of the local thing or something that happened abroad. That time we didn't have internet and stuff, that, so it was mediated through TV or newspapers. There was a certain delay in knowing between what's happening, what actually is happening, and who is talking behalf of whom. So today things shifted a lot, of course, because people somewhat talk for themselves through the internet, but um, 
I think since then I've been interested in this idea of distortion, of how this kind of the way I started perceiving that day was really much influenced by this coincidence, let's say, and how my cognition, my perception was affected by how things were mediated. So I realized that the mythology around the story occupies a kind of a real space, you know, what's talked or what's not talked and um, uh, these invisible things. So I think this was the beginning of this interest. And somewhat this was brought to labor somehow, these ideas of mediation and labor, I think, is pretty much a realm of human existence that is very important as to define who we are. We always define yourself through our work. And I think this also creates a sort of um, distortions. We, we create, we internalize these things and we start perceiving sometimes because of ideological reasons or personal reasons, things as not labor, but what they actually are. And I think I naturally move from this mediation within this media coverage towards the mediation of or how we transform the world, right? That's, that's labor, perhaps. Was this also a, a way for you to reflect on your work as an artist? Because our work is often often remains invisible um, in the realm of art. Yes, it's true. I, I'm very interested in this invisibility, and um, but I would call it... For me, it's confusing now if I should use this word or not, but it's latency, when there is something beating and uh, you have to... As an artist, you kind of... Um, like offering some some paths or some links and putting things that they don't belong together together and then ask the people you're engaging with to construct with you something. But I guess this distortion also allows for new connections to be made and fiction is a, an artistic strategy that you often use to bring this kind of issues together. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could give a specific example um, of a previous work where you're using it to bring forward these issues. How would phrase this? Uh, there is a certain reality that comes to me as an external person, and I have to catch up with this reality. And as soon as I'm able to, through the work, to catch up with this reality, then I can go over it. So I think this is the process of what we could call fiction. First, you catch up. Then you move a bit forward, and this moving forward most of the time, I think, can bring like a hopeful option to the table. And then I think that's where the fiction comes about. For example, while living in Chicago, I became friends with Catherine, a massage therapist that has her massage parlor next to where I used to live in Humboldt Park. At that time, I was interested in doing a sort of documentary about Catherine. Catherine was born in China and immigrated to Chicago in 2005. Her parlor offered four kinds of massages. Sports massage, foot massage, Swedish massage, and happy ending massages. Only the happy ending massage is not advertised at the window of the parlor. 
At the time, I was specifically interested in the waiting time within her work. She told me that what she really disliked about her job is the waiting time between customers, where she either plays Candy Crush, cleans the parlor, or traces an old Barnes & Noble copy of Mob Dick or The Whale. Catherine literally handwrites on top of each printed letter of the book that very same letter again and again. A A for an A, a B for a B, and etc. The fact that she was doing this repet repetitive process with Mob Dick really fascinated me, and the project sort of rerouted towards a complete new direction. So I got very fascinated by Mob Dick as well, and I knew of Melville from other contexts and works, but I think what fascinated me in the book a lot was how detailed and how obsessive and technical he was about the details of fishing, the way of hunting, and then, of course, this fight of man with God and all the things we know of the book. The book itself is very epic because it's like very thick. It stands on itself, literally. It's like uh, 600 pages, more or less. And then somewhat I started digging into how the book was made and I found out that Melville himself had, let's call it, helpers, his wife and his sisters, in order to transcribe the manuscript of the book that he was writing every day in order to send it to the publisher. Uh, it was said that because his handwriting was apparently very bad. I got really interested in this family endeavor, whereas all this work was invisible and somewhat I wanted to resurface this story. But through the lens of my own personal history that I think I need to bring up. Somewhat this untold story of how the book was produced resonated a lot with the fictional book itself. On another hand, in the US, these massage parlors, like uh, for example from the outside, they are they have all these ads that conveys ideas of healthcare and stuff, and you don't really know what's happening inside. So I was very interested in this idea that it's illegal to do what happens inside the massage parlor, but outside they convey this idea of health and holistic view. But we all know what happens inside, and for you perhaps listener don't know, as I said, there is a lot of massage parlors that do this so-called happy ending massage where usually men go get a massage. So um, I went there and I proposed to Catherine if she would be willing to let me publish the book as a facsimile. At the time, there was a big chunk of the book left still to be done. So I engaged with her in two senses. I encouraged her to finish what was left and in order to do that, I asked her to suggest a price, and she came up with the idea of charging the same amount she would charge for the massage hour, therefore it was $70 an hour. We also decided that we would stay with her while I was doing the writing, and that we would hang out together. After the book was finished, she charged me for all the work she did before I showed up in the parlor, and for the work that she did after. In total, I was charged for 44 hours. I think the initial choice and inclination towards a massage parlor and a sexual worker has to do with my own personal history. That is something that I have to deal with from the place I'm from. How my masculinity was built is very connected to this world and something that I felt I have to deal with it.
So I think there are a lot of untold stories that I didn't want to resurface then. Also, in the background, I kept thinking about this idea of palimpsest, of things that are repeated, not through erasure, but as superimposition. So when you are repeating them, instead of clarifying them, you're making them more complicated because you're writing on top of something that's already there. So it blurs many memories. So I was trying to merge this history of the US as an empire manifested in the book, Mob Dick, my own personal narrative, and the life of this friend, which was Catherine. And of course, all the sisters and the wife of Melville himself. So I worked on this series of coincidences, basically, that maybe are not so coincident in the end of the day. And I expanded those coincidences. Something was already there somewhat. So the, the published book is a way for me to catch up with this reality. Then I can go over it. Uh, currently, the book can be acquired for its print cost price. There are no editions, but virtually, as far as it's printable, is an endless supply kind of thing. The book signed by me and Catherine. In that sense, we are co-authors in a very specific way. Maybe I perceive myself more of a publisher, I guess. I mean, the book is not available yet to be uh, bought, but soon it will be. Um, and lastly, this book, just for you to understand as an image, is written on top of the original book. So it's repeated. But then for the most remarkable interactions, I wrote notes on the sides of the pages. So it conveys the idea of these misunderstandings, what we were talking about, the subject matters, and I can tell a little story that can convey how we were on the same page, but not really, I guess. For example, one day someone knocked really hard on the door. It really felt it was the police or something because what she does is not legal. And then she came, she came to me, she hugs me and says, Felipe, don't worry, just stay calm. Moments of rupture and expectation. So these little interactions I wrote about in those notes to convey these empty spaces, unimportant moments that actually are very important manifestations of something, I think. So going back to this uh, relational aspect of uh, uh, yeah. economies, uh, I would like to ask you, how do you connect with the, the term community economies? That was also the main uh, subject focus of uh, um, of the School of Infinite Rehearsals. And how did that resonate with you before you applied, but also now after the seven weeks? What community and economies would mean for me in relation to this, but expanding a bit, would be to think about like um, individually, like how to maintain like all this history I personally have and how to cope with things that I'm not necessarily proud of it, but somewhat I have to deal with it and all these symptoms that we all have and the work, in, work through the symptoms or not erase them, you know. And I think the community economics for me, the angle of interest that I came here was thinking through perhaps this economy, not literally of like 
economic goods, but the economy of um, perhaps these debts we have with each other that are affective debts or like when the, when I'm late to meet you, I feel guilty and then what to do with this debt or situations in many families where someone in the family took care of the elderly more than the others. And so in a trajectory of these interpersonal relations, two people meet and they bring all this luggage and there is a certain context. So my angle of approach was more this towards community economies. I was trying to that I proposed, but I think we end up in other, many other directions. So, But another angle that uh, you wanted to bring into the discussion, I don't know if it actually happened, was uh, your claim, uh, claiming back the right to weariness. Yes. Yes, I think this was a, a sort, I have to admit, speculative uh, or may let's proposition. And I, I mean, this is not my idea, but I read over the book of uh, The Neutral from Holland Barthes. And then also this idea is one in one article that I read from this scholar called Joan Kopchek. And um, she mentioned Barthes, but also she's, she's talking about Abba Kerostam film and how the time of the film is perceived. And I think this idea of fatigue and weariness is a philosophical proposition. So I'm not really talking here about our daily works, nine to five, and that like we want to be, but thinking through film, perhaps as discursively, philosophically, let's call it like that, a film that's very slow, that make you tired through the slowness of the moving image. I think in the end, although for some might be painful, I think if you really sit and watch, it might in the end reward you with some kind of creative fatigue. Weariness, in that sense, when it's chosen, it also has something that can be creative, you know, and created out of that. And I think perhaps the argument would go like, today we don't choose to be where or we don't choose to be fatigued because it's imposed on us. And we perceive fatigue as something bad. Of course, under these circumstances it is, but I think it could be something that we could regain, you know. And I think that was what I kind of proposed to explore here. But of course, we had to be open to everything. The way that the term community economy was coined by Gibson and Graham and that actually inspired the title of this movement has a lot to do with the space of uh, collective negotiation between all life forms. And I think that the School of Infinite Rehearsals where different people come together to immerse themselves into collective research is such a space. So I'm curious to know from you, how was this research process how did it develop during these seven weeks? And what were these spaces that you um, ended up finding altogether? I think the most fundamental thing was to understand that perhaps each one of us was trying to reproduce systems we are used to in our own lives and bring to this to the group as a way we should do things. 
And by that, I, I go for simple things, like to have a communication tool as a group in Signal, to use Google Calendar as a tool of organization. I think we very fast realized that it's required for us to not take these things for granted, but to understand how each one of us perceive time, you know what I mean? So the community economy thing starts from day zero because people are already one hour late and people were wanted to leave one hour before. So I think this is the, the very ground basic thing to understand how people perceive time and how they organize their time. Going back to this notion of the invisible time that we talked a lot so far, uh, to me, to my understanding, this also became the anchor that formulated somehow your collective research as a group. And I'd be interested to hear from you, how did you decide to address this topic altogether? We are trying to trying to be to narrow down, you know, because it was a very difficult, like it's a very large topic, community economy. So we narrowed down to the to think in the art field what these ideas mean, and I think we are pretty much by now kind of very aware of how things operate. We all know somewhat like how. People are not well paid, how certain, a lot of works are not very well compensate most of everything. But, um, then we realized that the time perhaps within the art field that is more, uh, is not even useless because useless, useless can be a very good thing. It's more like a time that is a dead time. You know, is a, is, there is no movement, it's pure stillness. We realize it is application time when you're applying for something. And we are trying to think what these times means. It's a time of like where you mortgage your present for something in the future. And I think this was something we were like, okay, maybe, so what to do with this, you know? And we talked a lot also about uh, harm reduction. As like, of course, we all have a lot of ideas of what could be done but in the sense we also I think we focus a lot in this idea of like okay if we're trying out something here in these seven weeks what we can do maybe let's address this little issue in the little art world in this very insignificant thing that like is application for artists so we talked a lot about this within this realm of applying to things what what these times means, you know, like, because in the end, of course, the ideal world would be no applications. Everybody's just accepted for everything. And you have like, you could have a, whatever you desire in the art field every time you want, but therefore, if it's not possible, so how could we operate different, perhaps taking consideration that maybe applications are perhaps needed, then how to compensate the time you spend applying to something. We are trying to think something along those lines, you know, or to recompensate an application that was rejected. We we were trying to come up with a project like this, you know, somewhat. Did you find a way to monetize this time? A way to monetize this time? That's a problem. We didn't. But we had some ideas where... 
perhaps the principle of whatever project like this look like in the future would be a principle of like not asking people to justify themselves. And I think that's a position that we find a lot of times we do these things that I think this is no one should do to defend or to justify like where you have the the right to get this or that. So we thought of a possible solution where you just go and grab if you need. And then we thought maybe it could be two ways. You can go and grab as you need, but could be you go and you drop money there if you have excess of money. So then it enters an idea that maybe Amanda mentioned that is like this common pool idea. But then enter a lot of other questions, like what is the scale of this project? Uh, for whom? From whom? And like, um, because we didn't even go to this page of like, let's talk about trust. It's not about this, you know what I mean? But we are really trying to, to think about of this, how to say, how the circulation of this time and money would happen and like without justification every time you externalize these kind of things so it was a sort of a speculative idea because in the end i think we couldn't do anything along those lines but we did use the budget of the project here to throw a party and within this party we got some goodies or bag of stuff that we we're gonna just make them available here. It will be like from wine to olive oil to bread for whoever feel entitled to compensate itself, themselves for this dead time that eventually they have, perhaps. Eh? You think about it, you don't even have to perform anything. You take it home. And maybe as a sort of rumor, you talk about this in the party because kind of it became the theme of the party. So and to conclude, I think we realized that we always found ourselves talking about pleasure. And in the end, community economies as a topic, we aim towards this idea of um, the economy of pleasure, let's say. And, um, and somewhat the obvious solution was somewhat to, to a certain extent, invest in a party to close this. Well, before we close this discussion today, I would like to ask you one last question. I'm curious to know what's uh, next for you. I was looking at this team before the pandemic, but I think now with pandemic it became even more prevalent, which is the labor on uh, the, the realm of labor again, but online. But I was interested in this idea of the click workers, which was this kind of underpaid work, online work, underpaid or online work, where it's not the home office kind of situation, but it's kind of, um, there is a lot of labor online where people work for, in order to make artificial intelligence works better. And this is a very repetitive work where people are kind of like for many hours doing this and clicking and doing like very repetitive tasks. One aspect of this that I'm interested in is the fact that a lot of people conceive this work as what they called beer money, whereas the 
they claim that this work is done during leisure time, so that's why they can accept such a low pay rate. And and this so it gets really confusing because you're allowing yourself to do this work that pay very little, but because you justify to yourself you can do it during leisure time. Felipe, thank you very much for sharing uh, your experience with me today. It was lovely to talk to you. And uh, I hope you you will be back soon. Thank you very much. Me too. It was very nice. Thank you for listening. If you want to listen to more conversations, please subscribe to our channel. You can find more about the UNASSE residency program and each participant at www.onasses.org. This series is produced by Onassis Air. Thanks to Nikos Kolias, the sound designer of the series, and to Nikos Liberis for providing the original music intro theme. <laughs>